Good to see you this morning. I see a few visitors with us today, and I just want to welcome you to Redeemer Church. Uh, We're so glad you've come to worship the Lord with us this morning. I just want to point out uh, that we have uh, on this table over to my left here, we have a little visitor cards, and that's just a way for us to get to know your names and how we can pray for you, any way that we can walk with you. We just desire to do anything we can to help you uh, to walk with the Lord, to know Him, to uh, grow in Him. And, and so uh, if you would want to fill up one of those cards and, and drop it in that giving box in the back before you leave today, we would love to get to know you more that way. Uh, we're about to turn to the book of Joshua and and also uh, just want to explain uh, for our body and for visitors this morning that that we really believe at Redeemer Church in expositional preaching, which which is to say we believe that, that the healthiest thing for uh, a local church is not for uh, the pastor or preacher to think every single week, what should I talk about this week, but instead to go through the Word of God in a systematic way, book by book, chapter by chapter, unit by unit, and hear what God has said. God knows what we need better than we do, and so we are in the book of Joshua, and I say that because this morning's text uh, is uh, in large part about the circumcision of Israel, <laughs> and and that may seem like an odd thing to talk about, except God has given it to us in His Word, and so we're going to learn from that this morning. But before we get into Joshua, I want to ask you guys, have you ever, uh, even this week you probably saw it, though I don't want to uh, zone in on one politician, because this is through throughout all politicians, have you ever seen especially during natural disaster times, uh, people criticize politicians for going golfing. You know, some some terrible thing is happening in some part of the world, some part of the country, and then you get a politician who's going golfing or or doing something relaxing, and and they get pictures of it and criticize that politician for, for, why aren't they there? Why aren't they helping? Why aren't they doing something? How can they go relax when this is happening? You guys have seen that, right? Well, I want to ask, could the same charge be leveled against the church? Every Sunday morning, we gather in our seats and we enjoy, uh, in our case, we enjoy the air conditioning and the building and each other's company. And it's a refreshing time, an encouraging time, while outside of these walls, there is a lost and dying world. Could that charge be leveled against us? Why are we in here when we should be out there? Well, this morning's text in Joshua gives us the answer to this question, and it's no. The answer is that 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 charge cannot be leveled against the church, and we're going to see that the reason why is that the worship of God always must precede the mission of God. The worship of God always must precede the mission of God. And so you can open your Bible to Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5. This morning's text is Joshua 5, 1 through 12. And before we look at this text closely, I just want to give you a little background on two things that will come up in this passage. Uh, to explain why I want to do this, uh, some of you uh, know that there are quite a few nurses in the church, nurses, nursing students, and, and I have found myself multiple times in conversations with a group of nurses and realized I have no idea what they're talking about. They are using jargon that I don't understand. And I don't want that to be the case as we look at Joshua 5 this morning. This, this text assumes some background that we want to know before we get into the passage. And so there's two things that we want to look at this morning. One is the covenant sign of circumcision. The covenant sign of circumcision. So you can keep your, your finger in Joshua 5, but, but if you can, turn with me back to Genesis 17. I should have had you turn there. Genesis 17 We're going to look at this covenant sign of circumcision and what this means together. This is just essential background to understand our passage today. So you guys remember that 
Abram, Abraham was chosen by God in Genesis 12. God chose him and said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. And, and through you, I'm going to bless all the nations, all the families of the earth. And, and this was the beginning of really God's redemptive plan to save the world from the sin that we had gotten ourselves into. And he chose Abram to do this through. And then in Genesis 15, you, you remember a few months ago, we looked at this, that God confirmed that promise to Abram. He was going to bless him and make his name great and bless the world through him. He confirmed it through a covenant. He made a covenant with Abram. And, you know, when they made covenants in the Old Testament, uh, especially in this case in Genesis, something that they would often do between two people is they would literally cut animals in half and make a line of animals to walk through. And, and when they walked through that line of animals that had been cut in half, they were essentially saying, as they made the covenant, may this be what happens to me if I break our covenant. Abram did that in Genesis 15. God instructed him to, to, to line up the animals and, and he was going to make a covenant with him. But then what happened in Genesis 15? Abram did not walk through the animals, but he saw the presence of the Lord go through. And what that showed, why that was significant, was that God was saying to Abram, I'm making this covenant promise to you completely based on my grace. It's, it's completely my promise to you. You don't need to do anything except believe the promise. You don't need to do anything to, to get this promise, but it's just simply my grace to you. We saw that in Genesis 15. Now, Genesis 17, we read this. In Genesis 17, starting in verse 9, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money or, or any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant." Okay, so in Genesis 17, in those verses, what are we seeing? The reason I reminded you of Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 is because I want you to see that what we're not seeing is God placing a condition on his promise. God has made the promise to Abraham. He has made the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. He's the one that walked through. He is not saying, I will promise this to you if you do this. What he is saying is, Abraham, if you believe the promise then here's the sign that you believe it. And any of your descendants after you, once you die and you have offspring and descendants, if any of them want to be a part of this promise that I've made to you by my grace, then they can show that they believe the promise too by receiving this sign of the promise. That is what this covenant of circumcision is. It is a sign between God and his people to show that they believe the promise that God made to him. It's not a way into the covenant, it is a sign that they believe it. And, and this makes sense for why then he would say if someone does not get circumcised, they're cut off. Why would they be cut off? Because they're refusing to receive the sign that they believe the promise. And so, so they're not going to be part of it. They're refusing to follow the instructions that show that they believe in the promise of God. So circumcision in the Old Testament, starting in Genesis 17, is a sign that symbolizes faith in the promise of God, which is made by grace. This is what circumcision represents in Genesis 17, and so forth from there. 
Now, no, that's circumcision. The second thing I want to look at, just a little background, is on the Passover. So turn forward in your Bible to Exodus 12. Exodus 12. By this point, the Israelites, Abraham's descendants, are slaves in Egypt. God has sent Moses to free them. He has sent nine plagues on the Egyptians to compel Pharaoh to let Israel go. Israel has persistently refused to let them go, and now the Lord is warning that a tenth plague is coming. And and the tenth plague is that the, the Lord is going to pass through Egypt and strike down the firstborn of every household. This is the warning God gives to Pharaoh, and and he's going to strike down the firstborns, except, he says, for those whose households have applied the blood of a lamb on their doorposts. He says that this, this is what he instructed Israel to do. If you apply the blood of a Passover lamb, a lamb that you sacrifice without blemish, that, that this when I, when I see the blood, I will literally pass over your house, and, and your house will be spared from that judgment. So that's what's going on in Exodus 12. They're getting ready for this Passover. And Exodus 12 gives instructions for, for where to get the lamb and what to do with it. And then, and then also to have a meal with this lamb, a Passover meal. And it even shows that this meal was intended not to be a one-time thing for Israel, but to be something that they did every year from then on to remember what God was about to do in saving Israel out of Egypt. It was, it was a, a redemption meal. For the Israelites. Now, I want to just look at two instructions in this chapter that are relevant for our passage today. First, in verses 5 and 6, Exodus 12, 5 and 6, he says, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. What you need to see there is just the specific timing that God instructs. It is to be the 14th day of the first month that this meal is eaten. That that is what God has said in his word to the Israelites. This is when you will do this, and every year after this, this is when you'll celebrate the Passover. It's just like we celebrate Christmas on December 25th. That's the day. He says, this is the day you will celebrate the Passover. Now jump down to verse 47 and following. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it, keep the Passover, If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native to the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. So here we see a connection with circumcision, don't we? We see that the Passover meal is reserved only for those who have received the sign of circumcision. It's reserved for those who have expressed their faith in the covenant promises of God. So, so if, if you were an Israelite who had not been circumcised, that means that you, you really had not um, expressed that you are under that covenant through receiving that sign. And therefore, you, you have not expressed that you are actually part of God's covenant people. And this is the, the meal of God's covenant people. The Passover is that meal. And so God makes a connection for them between receiving the sign of circumcision and celebrating the Passover. This is God's instructions to his people for how to worship him in these things. And so that's, again, that's a background to Joshua 5. It will save us some time now as we go into Joshua 5 and understand what we're looking at here. So turn back to Joshua, and we will get into Joshua 5 today. Let me remind you, those of you who haven't been here with us, Joshua is all about the people of God receiving the promises of God. He promised them to bring them into the land of Canaan, the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And Joshua 5 is about the people going into that land and receiving it, taking the land and receiving the inheritance 
Last week and the week before, we saw the story of how to get into the land, they needed to cross the Jordan River, which was not just a little creek you could walk across. It was a raging river, and they had no way across it except that God miraculously comes and he makes the river into a wall so that they can cross the Jordan on dry ground. 40,000 people crossing over the river on dry ground by the hand of God. And so now they are in the land. God has done this miracle. They are actually in the promised land. And look at what we read first in verse 1. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. So in this verse we see how the people who were living in the promised land reacted when they heard the news that God had miraculously dried up the Jordan for Israel. It says their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them. They were thinking to themselves, if Israel's God can do that, then we don't stand a chance. That's what, that's what they were thinking. Though no battles had been fought, they knew what the outcome would be. I imagine they felt something like I would feel if I found myself facing an arm wrestling contest against an NFL linebacker. I'd have no spirit left in me, right? I would say that this is, this is as good as done. Now, if you're Israel, you've crossed the Jordan. You're in the land. You know that the next step toward inheriting the land is conquering the inhabitants of the land. You know that they are shaking in their boots. What seems like the next logical step? Go do it, Right? Go fight, go take the land, go receive the inheritance, go to battle. But this is not what God calls them to do. We've been waiting this whole book to see them finally begin to take the land. It's not going to happen this week, guys. (laughs) It's not this week. God calls them to do something else. Look at verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. I would imagine if I was Joshua saying to the Lord, Really? Like right now? You want us to do this right now? Couldn't that wait until we're settled in the land? Don't you think we should fight first, be circumcised later? Uh, If we're circumcised now, we're going to be vulnerable to attack? Is this really a good idea, Lord? But Joshua does not do that. Joshua obeys the Lord's instruction. Look at verse 3 and following. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Harlah. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. Okay, so here we see the reason that God gives to Joshua to 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 do this, to circumcise the sons of Israel, is because this generation, this, this generation that's going into the land had never been circumcised. Their parents had. Their parents were the ones who were in Egypt. Their parents were the ones who experienced the plagues. Their parents were the ones who went through the Red Sea. And their parents were the ones who, when God called them to go into the land, were afraid to go and chose not to go and disobeyed the voice of the Lord. 
And so their parents were the ones who, who were in the wilderness for 40 years until every single one of them died, except Joshua and Caleb, the only two faithful Israelites. And so this, this Exodus generation, the generation that experienced all these things, they disobeyed the Lord. And one thing that they disobeyed the Lord in as well was they did not circumcise their sons. They didn't give their sons the promise of circumcision. And, and, and so God instructs them to now obey before they go into the land and to circumcise. And look how God responds when Joshua does this. In verse 8, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. So, as you're asking, why, why does the Lord say this? They, they received the sign of circumcision, and he says, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. What does that mean? Here's, I think, what's going on. The, the wilderness generation had received the reproach of Egypt because they had, they had been freed from slavery in Egypt, but then they, they just wandered in the wilderness until they died. They themselves said, we had it better in Egypt. That They just wandered. And so, so what it looked like to the Egyptians as this wilderness generation wandered around until they all died was, was look at their God now. Look at these people now. They, they're just wandering around until they die with no home, no place, no provision. And, and, and that was a reproach from the Egyptians to the people of Israel. That's, and God is saying, as his people now receive circumcision in the land, he's saying, those days are gone. Essentially, he is, he is separating them from their parents. He's saying, you are not like your parents' generation who did not believe and who were reproached for it. You are now in the land. You are receiving the promises. The wilderness is behind you. The promised land is here. So, so, so God, is, God is affirming what they're doing here. God is, God is pleased with what they're doing here. God is saying, yes, this is good. The reproach of Egypt is gone. Well, circumcision was not the only thing that Israel needed to observe before they began the conquest. At the very end of the passage, we see one more thing that they observe in verses 10 through 12. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. There was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. So again, we see a similar pattern to the circumcision. We see that Israel obeys God's instructions. It's the 14th day of the first month. That's the day to celebrate Passover, and that's what they do. They celebrate the Passover. And in response to that obedience, what does God do? He, he provides food from the land, and the manna stops coming. You guys remember the manna was what God provided to the wilderness generation. This was the food for the wilderness. But again, God is saying, the wilderness is behind you. You don't need manna anymore because you are now receiving the promises. Again, God is saying, I'm pleased with this generation, and, and you are receiving the promises, and the wilderness is no more. You are in the promised land. So in verse 1, we have this report of the people in the land. They are deathly afraid of Israel. It seems like the land is primed for the taking. But then in verses 2 through 9, we have this instruction to be circumcised. And we see Israel obey that. In verses 10 through 12, we see that it's time for the Passover, and Israel obeys that. In both of those cases, we see that God really affirms their obedience by telling them that essentially the wilderness is behind you, that I am pleased with this generation. You will receive the promises 
What's going on in this section of Joshua? Why is this here? Why is this what happened? What are we to make of this section of Joshua for our lives today? I believe these verses do teach us an important principle as the people of God, who are on the mission of God, receiving the promises of God. That's who we are today as well. And here's what God is teaching us this morning. The people of God must prioritize the faithful worship of God above all else. The people of God must prioritize the faithful worship of God above all else. Just when it seems like Israel should begin to take the land, God commands them to be circumcised. Why? Because God had said to Abraham that only those who receive the sign of circumcision are going to receive the land. This, this is obedience. But then again, why right now? Well, because you're about to celebrate the Passover and you can't do that unless you've been circumcised. So again, this is obedience. And why celebrate the Passover now? Why not wait till later? Because God says you have to do it on the 14th day of the first month. Again, this is obedience. Israel is obeying the word of God. They are taking seriously what God has said about worship. Even when the opportunity is before them to go and conquer the land, even knowing that when they are circumcised, they're going to be vulnerable to attack, even knowing that this doesn't really make sense from a human perspective, they understand that their primary calling is the faithful worship of their God. This is the highest priority of the people of God. Worshiping Him faithfully is more important than anything else. And this is true for us too. More important than anything else is that we prioritize the worship of our God. When I first came to Redeemer, uh, Redeemer was planted about a year before we got here, and so I was trying to wrap my mind around... uh, did I just say minds? I just have one mind. But uh, try to wrap my mind around our purpose statement and our pillars. And, and we see that we have, we have four pillars, worship and fellowship and discipleship and mission. These are the things that we are committed to as a church. And, and so I, I wrote a series of blogs really just for myself to try to kind of wrap my mind around what, what are we about as a church. And, and the first one I wrote was that worship is our primary pillar. Worship is our primary pillar. The, the, the all four are really not created equal, but that the others all flow from worship. But worship comes first. Worship is where the foundation for the other pillars to, to have true life and, and faithfulness out of. And so, so this morning we're going to look at this primary pillar of worship and, and, and see why do we need to prioritize it and, and how do we prioritize the faithful worship of God in our lives. What does this text teach us about prioritizing the faithful worship of God in our lives individually, as families, and as a church? And so first, just three things that this text teaches us about prioritizing faithful worship in our lives. First, prioritize faithful worship by paying attention to your heart. Prioritize faithful worship by paying attention to your heart. You know, this text teaches us a lot about the outward forms of worship. Uh, circumcision and the Passover. These are, these are external acts. These are outward things that Israel was instructed to do. But before we look at that more closely, we need to see that this text implicitly shows that there's something more fundamental than the outward acts. This text actually, while it holds out the importance of circumcision and the Passover, it also implicitly teaches they're not all important. There's something more important than being circumcised, something more important than celebrating the Passover on the 14th day of the month, and that is your heart. So, so, so look, at the explanation of circumcision in Joshua 5, 
we see that the people who were delivered from Egypt, had they or had they not been circumcised? They had been circumcised, hadn't they? That generation had received the sign of the covenant. But what happened to them? They disbelieved in God. They did not put their faith in God. And they perished in the wilderness. So we see something there, don't we? We see that even though they had received the sign, that their hearts actually were unbelieving and they perished. The sign meant nothing for them because they didn't believe in God in the heart. And and then for this generation that, that we're looking at in Joshua, we've seen in this book, this generation is believing the promises of God. They are following the instructions of God. And yet they've not been circumcised, but God is blessing them and God is helping them. And so we see, before we look at anything else about the outward acts that God instructs, we see that really, fundamentally, worship is about our hearts. It's not about the things we do externally. Which means that worship is not about how often you go to church. Worship is not about if you've been baptized or not been baptized. Worship is not about taking the bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper. Worship is not about these things fundamentally. Fundamentally, worship is about a believing heart, a heart that is given to God, surrendered to God, loving God. External actions in worship don't matter at all if there's not a believing heart where they spring from. Turn with me to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Paul is writing to the the Jews in his day who take pride in the fact that they keep the law and are circumcised. But he says in Romans chapter 2, starting verse 25, Circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. And then here's what I want you to see. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And and so Paul teaches here, God tells us here that it's not about the external sign. It's about the inward reality of the heart. And he tells us that this is by the Spirit, not by the law. He says that this inward change that we need can only happen by the Holy Spirit of God working in our hearts. And and, and the truth is what the Scripture teaches us is that our hearts are not the way they need to be. Our hearts are dead in our sin. We don't have any ability to offer God true worship. Just just think about this reality. God is the one true God worthy of all worship, calling all people to worship Him with full devotion, and yet we in our sin have no ability to worship Him the way He's due. That, That condemns us. We are condemned by that reality. We cannot give to God what He is due because we are fallen in our sin. And and that means that we are in desperate need of salvation. We need God to come in by His Spirit and change our hearts to do this inward work that we cannot do. And turn to Colossians 2 with me where we see exactly how God does this. Colossians chapter 2, just a few chapters over. Listen to what Paul says here. 
He's talking about Jesus and how Jesus is is the fullness of God who has come and taken on flesh and and what he has done. And in chapter 2, verse 11, Colossians 2, 11, he says, In him, in Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross." This is what Jesus does for us in the cross. He takes our sins and he takes our our, our filth and he dies for us and he rises again and we're united to that by faith as the Spirit comes and shows us the gospel, we put our faith in Christ, that, that Jesus does what we could not do. He gives us the heart that we could not have. As we behold Christ, he, he, does, he does this heart circumcision, the circumcision made without hands. That, that's, that's another way for Paul to say that the inward working that we cannot do ourselves. Jesus does it. The Spirit does it as we hear of the work of Christ, as we're united to him by faith. And, and so this morning, as we think about Joshua 5, as we think about the reality that we need to offer faithful worship to God, as we think about circumcision, we, we need to realize that, that where we all stand this morning, left to ourselves, is that we cannot faithfully worship God on our own. Our hearts are dead and, 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 and filthy before Him in our sin, and that we need Him to do an inward change. We don't need to do external things. We don't need outward actions. We need an internal change that only the Spirit of God can give, and He gives it through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what we need to do this morning, if, if, if you this morning know that you've never had that inward change, then you call out to God this morning and say, say give me a new heart. Don't leave here and say, I'm going to try to do better. I'm going to try to worship God better. That won't work. Say, I need a brand new heart. I need you to do in me what I cannot do in myself. And for those of you who have, you know that's happened in you, you have a new heart given to you by God, know that worship is always continually about our hearts. It's always about our hearts. From the moment we're saved to the end, we are always, our worship is always in spirit and in truth. It's about our hearts. And so pay attention to your heart. Make sure that you are not just going through the motions of worship. Going through the motions, the external acts, mean nothing apart from hearts that are loving God. So this is where faithful worship starts. If you're going to prioritize faithful worship, pay attention to your heart. The second, faithful worship also involves obeying Christ's covenant instructions. Okay, prioritize faithful worship by obeying Christ's covenant instructions. Let me explain what I mean here. Though we do affirm that the heart is fundamental in worship, there is more to worship than simply what goes on in our hearts. You guys realize that, right? God has not just said, it's about the heart, you do it your way now. Just whatever you want, it's about the heart. No, God has actually given us instructions for how to worship Him externally what our outward acts of worship should look like. Just like he commanded these believing Israelites, he still commanded them to be circumcised. He didn't just say, well, your hearts are fine, so don't worry about that. He still said, receive the sign of circumcision. Do it not, not because you're trying to be something that you're not, but do it as an expression of your heart's worship to me. So, So what does this mean for us? For the church today, well, you guys might have seen it in Colossians that 
that circumcision is related to baptism. And, and the way that we understand these things to relate is that, is that circumcision was the sign for the people of God in the Old Covenant. To be part of the New Covenant people of God only happens through faith in Jesus Christ. When you put your faith in Christ, you are included in the New Covenant community, and the sign of that is baptism. And, and, and so, when you think about baptism, th- this, is, this is what faithful worship needs to look like in our lives. If, if you have believed in Christ, if you put your faith in Him, but you've not been baptized, be baptized. Be baptized. This is the first act of obedience to Christ in the Christian life. This is the first act of faithful worship in the Christian life. And so I know that we, we have youth here, and we have some, some kids who are, who are growing in your understanding of the faith. You're growing in your understanding of who God is and what He's done for you. And, you're, and, and, and if you come to realize that you have been united to Christ, you put your faith in Christ, then, then we should not wait long to baptize you, because this is the first command that Christ has given to His disciples. This is the sign that you are part of the covenant. This is the sign that you are united to Christ by faith. Be baptized. You know, I'm wearing a wedding ring this morning, and, and this ring is not what makes me married, is it? But what is this? This is a sign that I am married. Now imagine if I said to Candace, I just really don't want to wear our rings. I, I just, I just, you, you can wear yours if you want, but I'm not going to wear mine. And there was really no reason besides I just, I just didn't really want the sign to be shown. I, I just, I just didn't, didn't want to do it. What would that say to my wife if I didn't want to wear my wedding ring and there wasn't any legitimate reason not to, like cut a finger off or something, right? What would that say? It, it, it would say something about my own commitment to her, my own love for her, my own desire to, to be her husband, right? This is what baptism is. It's a sign of the reality that we're united to Christ by faith. In and of itself, it doesn't save you. It's an external act, but it it is a way to express to God as he has instructed us to be baptized. It's a way to express that we are part of the covenant. We are united to Christ by faith, and we are believing in him. So this morning, if you are a believer who has not been baptized, be baptized. Let's talk, and let's see how we can move toward that day where you you can obey Christ in this way. Secondly, just like they celebrated the Passover, we also have a meal that's given to us in communion. And this passage would teach us that we need to celebrate communion rightly. Faithful worship of God involves celebrating communion rightly. Remember, they, they weren't allowed to take it until they had been circumcised. Now, it seems to imply even as we think about baptism and, and the Lord's Supper that that baptism comes first. Again, it is the first act of obedience that, that brings you into the family of God, so to speak. And, and so in communion, we need to celebrate it rightly. We need, we need to have been publicly uh, shown through baptism that we are part of the people of God, joining a local church as the people of God, and then the instructions that God gives us to examine ourselves, examine our hearts, repent of sins, reconcile with each other. These are things that we do every time before we take the Lord's Supper. This is how we take it rightly. Paul says in 1 Corinthians there's a way to take it wrongly. It's a way to take communion that, 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 that brings judgment upon yourself. What is communion is a family meal for the church. Communion is when we come together and, and we remember our Father, we remember what Christ has done, and, and we do it together. Now imagine going to a family meal, special family meal that, that your family has put together, and you go there and, and you just get out your phone the whole time and you're just you're not 
having conversation, and, and to you the point is just to get the food in my body and leave. That's not how we want to celebrate communion. We, we, the point is not get the elements in our bodies and leave. The point is to enter into the meal, to enter into the time, to take it rightly, to examine ourselves, to repent of our sins, to reconcile with each other, and to enjoy the communion we have with Christ and with each other every time we do it. This is faithful worship of God. And this is important. Christ has given this to us. This is not an optional thing for the church. These two acts, baptism and communion, are how we worship Christ as his new covenant people. They're not more fundamental than the heart. But if we have hearts that have actually been changed by Christ, then we're going to want to express that through obeying him in these things. So be baptized Celebrate communion rightly. These are how we can obey Christ's covenant instructions as a church. But then finally, prioritize faithful worship of God in your life by devoting yourself to personal worship and family worship and corporate worship. By devoting yourself to personal worship, family worship, and corporate worship. I really think that this is where the passage is driving at most is the priority of worship over other good things in our lives. Israel could have taken the land. It would have seemed right for them to take the land, but they had other more important things to do, namely worship God in the way that he had instructed them to worship. And and they prioritized that, and God was pleased with it. And we want to do the same. There are so many good things that we can do with our time. And there there are so many good things that we can do as a church, in our own personal lives, with our families. But we are off track. Church, we are off track if we let those things displace the rhythms of personal worship and family worship and corporate worship in our lives. If those things get in the way of these fundamental realities of of the worship that we should give to God, those, those times set aside to seek Him and to worship Him, then we are off track and we are in danger. You know, sleep is good. Sleep is a really good thing, but worship is better. And worship is more important. There's a point at which we need to get up and spend time with the Lord. Exercise is beneficial. But Paul himself says in 1 Timothy that that, that spiritual exercise is more important, of more lasting value, that that having that time of, of worship is more important than anything you might do for your body physically. Cleaning the house is a necessary thing in our lives. We need to clean our house, but worship is more necessary. Family worship is more necessary than making sure our house looks good all the time. Relaxing is satisfying. It's enjoyable to relax, to watch a show, to play a game, but worship is more satisfying. Family activities are valuable, but worship is more valuable to your family. Ministry is important, but worship is more important than ministry. In Luke 10, Jesus is visiting the house of Mary and Martha, and Martha is busy, busy, busy serving. And she's upset that Mary is just sitting at Jesus' feet, listening and being with him. And Jesus says to Martha, Mary has chosen the good portion. Why are you so anxious? She's chosen the good portion. And if we don't prioritize worship, church, here's the thing. We are forfeiting the good portion. You're forfeiting the good portion in your life personally. You're forfeiting the good portion for your, for your family. And you're forfeiting the good portion for our church. 
being with Jesus, setting aside time to focus our hearts on Him, to love Him, to hear from Him, to obey Him. This is the priority of the people of God above all else. And so this morning, just let me ask, what is the thing in your life that displaces personal worship? What is the thing in your life that displaces family worship? What is the thing that displaces corporate worship? I just want to encourage you, church, don't miss the good portion. They're probably good things, but they're not the most important thing. I said at the beginning of the sermon, I asked the question, should, should we be criticized as the church for, for gathering to worship God when there's a lost and dying world outside? And the answer I said is, is no. And we've seen why, because worship is the priority. Worship is what God instructs us to do first. Everything else flows from worship. But specifically in regard to that question, I want to give this answer that, that this is so important for us because of this reality. Missions exists because worship does. You guys think I was going to say worship doesn't, didn't you? That's, that's the quote. Missions exist because worship doesn't is the quote from Piper, and that's true. And this, this is just in line with that, but missions exist because worship does. What I mean by that is that we will never do mission if our hearts aren't thrilled with God and worship. We will, we, will, we will never actually go. We won't do fellowship. We won't do discipleship. We won't do mission if our hearts are not filled with worship of God. So these times are so important for us in our personal times every day. How are you going to live faithfully for God if you are not thrilled with worship of God, wanting to give glory to God? How are you going to be a dad and a mom and a husband and a wife if you're not filled with worship of God and saying, I want to use my family to to worship Him and glorify Him? Worship is the priority. And faithfulness in worship will bring faithfulness in all the other areas of our lives, church. And so let's prioritize the worship of God as the people of God today and this week and the rest of our lives. Let's stand together as we prepare to sing. I'll pray for us. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you that your word uh, gives us exactly what we need and equips us and helps us. And, And Father, we want to thank you this morning that when we were dead in our sins and the uncircumcision of our flesh, that by your Spirit you made us alive and you united us to Christ who, who was crucified for our guilt and bore your wrath and rose again so that we can be forgiven and cleansed and can enter into worship of you which is acceptable through him and him alone. Lord, help us to grow in our worship of you because of your great grace to us in him. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.